Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. And we're going to read verses 14 through 17. This is James speaking. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Amen. Father God, we look to your word as a source of encouragement, uh, the source of our uh, sanctification. We pray that you would speak that word into our hearts, that you would uh, take uh, the feebleness of uh, preaching, and Father, that you would quicken it and enable your uh, glory to be uh, shown forth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It is, actually. Is it on? Okay. Claude McDonald tells the story of a farmer who sent his nephew a crate of chickens. And when the nephew, a young fellow, was unloading it and transferring the crate, it broke and all the chickens uh, escaped and were running helter-skelter. It took him several hours to round them all up. And the next day, he wrote to his uncle and said, I chased them through my neighbor's yard, but I only got back 11 of the chickens. Uh, the uncle responded a few days later saying, You did all right. I only sent six chickens. <laughs> And that's uh, sort of the way uh, the passage that James quotes um, go, goes, the direction it goes. James quotes Amos 9, verses 11 through 12, and it's a promise that comes after ten frightening verses which promise judgment and exile, a guarantee that the people of the northern kingdom of Israel would be scattered throughout the world. In effect, what happened is six chickens were lost, but as you go through the chapter, you see not just six chickens regained or even a few additional ones put in there, but the chapter ends with such a glory that it makes the former state uh, pale into insignificance. And so you've got God scattering Israel and then regathering Israel, and He gathers far more than He scattered. And what He does is He ends up gathering all of the Gentiles along with Israel into the church. So it's really a wonderful prophecy, and we'll be looking at that in a minute. But I want us to think about the judgment that came first. Uh, back in 722 B.C., many of the proverbial chickens of the northern kingdom of Israel were slaughtered, were taken into captivity. And Amos starts with a very frightening picture of utter ruin to people who have refused to repent of their sins, who have insisted on independence from God. Only a tiny remnant would be preserved from the northern kingdom uh, here's what Warren Wearsby said about a later judgment that I think applies to this situation as well. He said, God would rather see His land devastated, the city of Jerusalem ruined, His temple destroyed, and His people killed and exiled 
than to have them give such a false witness to the Gentile nations. That's kind of a sobering uh, way to begin a sermon, but we do live in a time when the church is in absolute ruins and the chickens are scattered and we need to see the seriousness of the situation if we're to see the solution. And there is a glorious solution, but first of all, we do need to put this passage into its right context. Uh, there are some people who teach that this it only applies after the second coming and does not directly apply today. And since almost all of us rub shoulders with these uh, dispensationalists, since I was one myself at one time, I thought it would be helpful to understand their interpretation. And they're good people, um, but I think they've seriously misunderstood this passage, which means that they seriously misapply uh, the text. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I've written up their position more fully, the weaknesses as well on the first side of the, uh, the handout, so you can study it in more detail. But let me try to give their uh, position on this before we dive in and then we'll deal with it shortly. Verse 14, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. They will say, first of all, notice the word first. <clears throat> that shows, they say, that the church age that's mentioned in verse 14 takes place before the age of the kingdom, which is in verses 16 through 17. They will say, notice second, that the church age is characterized by a Gentile people who was saved. This Gentile people is quite different from Israel. It is the church. They insist that you misinterpret the Scripture unless you understand the principle, the presupposition that is noted down in uh, point 1C1. And I'm just going to quote that for you. They say, The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages God is pursuing two distinct purposes. One related to earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism, while the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objectives involved, which is Christianity. And so dispensationalism is the polar opposite of covenant theology. They deny covenant theology. And covenant theology holds to a unity of people, a unity of purposes, a unity of Scripture. They deny that because they say we're New Testament Christians. The, the Old Testament was written for the Jews, not for the Christians. And they used to deny a unity of salvation. They were saved in a different way. Since the New Scofield Bible, dispensationalists have recognized, okay, that's really bad. So they have corrected uh, that particular uh, 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 issue. But uh, going on into verse 15, it says, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now, they will say, yes, these words do agree with Peter's speech. But uh, the only point of agreement between Peter's speech and this is that Jews and Gentiles can be saved. And they look to the, uh, the kingdom in the future and they say, okay, there's Jews saved there and there's Gentiles saved there. And that's the same thing that's happening here. But there is no other point of identity between Peter's speech and the verses that James uh, quotes. They insist that James is not trying to prove a unity of people, a unity of purpose, or even a doing away of ceremonial laws. You may not realize it. Dispensationalists believe all the ceremonial laws are going to be resurrected in the kingdom in the future. Uh, temple, priests, sacrifices, all of those things will be resurrected. 
So they insist the only point that Amos is proving is that Gentiles can get saved. Now, just as a side note, Jews never doubted that. They just doubt how it's going to be done. Okay, verse 16, back to their argument. After this, dispensationalists say that James is not summarizing anything implied in the written text of Amos. Instead, he's adding words to clarify that what James is quoting takes place after the 2,000-year period that Peter is talking about. They say James is simply giving a heads up that the kingdom age comes after the church age, and so that those two words should not be in the quotation marks. Uh, they disagree with covenant theology. Our covenant theology says that the, we are in the kingdom age. The kingdom started with Christ's first coming. Anyway, back to their uh, argument. Verse 16, after this I will return. They say that's the second coming. And will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. So they say the order is very, very clear. First of all, uh, the church age comes in verse 14. Then comes the second coming, verse 16. Then a rebuilt temple. That's the tabernacle of David being reestablished. And reestablished sacrifices, the restored Davidic kingdom that's going to rule over the nations. Then comes verse 17. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all of these things. They say that's describing Jesus on a physical throne in Jerusalem, ruling over all the nations of the world. Now, there is a certain logic to their interpretation. They've got this big chart. I don't know if you've ever seen the dispensational charts. And they take this chart and they're trying to fit it down into this, uh, this uh, verse here, or two verses here. But they're missing out on all kinds of contextual clues. And I'm not going to go over everything, especially uh, I'm going to skip over all of um, page one. That's just supplemental, just in case you wonder, boy, he really proved his point. I think just looking at what it means on page two should be enough to, to show you that that interpretation is not the most natural reading. Point two. A, sub-point A, what is the context of James's speech? Context is very important. And one of the rules of interpretation that dispensationalists frequently miss out is that you must not take a phrase out of its context. I've got sheets that show various Old Testament passages where on the dispensationalist hermeneutic, they've got maybe two or three sentences and it alternates between first coming, second coming, first coming, second coming, first coming, in a way that Old Testament people would never have been able to figure out what the text actually meant. You can't yank something out of its context. You've got to look. What is the context indicating? And it's quite clear that the context has nothing to do with national political entities. James is defending Paul's inclusion of the Gentiles in the church. And James is also defending Paul's statement that the ceremonial law is no longer binding. And so it goes, the context goes completely contrary to the dispensationalist interpretation. It just doesn't fit. Second, the issue that mystified some of the Jews in the first century is how can Jews and Gentiles... Sure, they could be saved, but how can they be in the same body? That was the thing that mystified them, and that's what this assembly was about. Look at verse 5. It says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. The Judaizers were concerned about this idea that Gentiles can be saved without becoming Jews. What's going on here? 
they insisted they had to become Jews, which meant they had to be circumcised, they had to keep all of the ceremonial uh, laws. Paul disagreed. Paul said that God has revealed a mystery. A mystery is a secret that's been not revealed until recently. God has revealed a mystery to every one of the apostles that, as Ephesians 3 words it, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the Gospel. Okay, back to Acts 15, verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. They weren't considering a future state of the Jews or politics or a future kingdom. They were considering this matter. And Peter's the first one to get up and say, I agree with Paul. And here's the reasons why I agree. Let's read verses 7 through 11. When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And so what Peter is stating is the exact opposite of dispensationalism, he is affirming a unity of God's people, a unity of God's purposes, and a unity of salvation. But certainly, he's insisting that the Gentiles, as Gentiles, can be in the same body with the Jews. And so it's astonishing to me that a dispensationalist like Charles Ryrie can say about verses 16 through 17, quote, "...the blessings will be earthly and national and will have nothing to do with the church, unquote. Uh, to me, that's so astonishing. Let me just go ahead and read it again. It says, The blessings will be earthly and national, and will have nothing to do with the church. Well, if it has nothing to do with the church, why is he bringing it up to settle a church controversy? And secondly, why does he word himself the way he does in verses 13 through 15? He says, it says, after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. James is saying that what Peter was saying and what Amos are saying, they're talking about exactly the same thing. With this, in other words, with the subject that Peter was talking about, with this, the words of the prophets agree. And it's not just a tangential, very, very narrow agreement. He says, just as it is written. Notice, too, that dispensationalists can't weasel out of the first words of verse 16. They claim that after this is not in Amos, either in meaning or in form or in application in any way. The after this refers to Peter's words. Okay, After whatever Peter is talking about, not after... Amos's comments, and so they don't include it in the quotation marks, but look at the verse again. James is quite clear that the after this is inherent in the meaning of Amos. He's interpreting Amos here. He says, as it is written, after this I will return. What's written? After this is written. And so whether it's summarizing Amos or translating or paraphrasing Amos or simply giving the meaning of Amos, James' words in indicate that there are two periods of time in Amos. 
There is one period earlier, and now after this, this occurs, whatever he's quoting. And so this is the historic position. Whatever verses 16 through 17 mean, Amos' words must somehow be related to Peter's two main points. Peter's first point, main point is stated in verse 9, and made no distinction between them and us. And I want you to get those two words, no distinction. Gentiles are not second-class citizens. Peter is saying exactly the same thing that the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 3, 3-6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise. So, you, you, I hope you see the problem that, that the dispensationalists have here. Dispensationalists say that verses 16 through 17 are teaching that there have been, there are, and there always will be two purposes and two peoples that God has in history. And the Israel of the future kingdom will not be part of the bride of Christ. And most of them say the Old Testament saints will not be part of the bride of Christ. They're going to be an earthly people. The church is going to be a heavenly people. Never the two shall meet. You can't take promises from the Old Testament and apply them now, uh, they will say. But James says, these words of Peter agree exactly with what Amos is talking about. And so the historic position, interpretation, fits the context. Second main point that Peter makes is that the ceremonial laws are no longer binding on anyone. Peter has not been eating kosher. When he's with the Gentiles, he eats just like the Gentiles did. So he obviously did not consider the, the, the ceremonial laws to be binding anymore. They are purely optional. And in verse 10, he calls any imposition of ceremonial law a testing of God. So Peter is just as strong on this as Paul was in the book of Galatians. Here's what he's basically saying. Once Jesus came, he is the final temple. He's the final priest. He's the final sacrifice. There can't be any resurrection of a temple or sacrifices or priesthood in the, in, in, in the future. And the quote from Amos has something to do with that. With this, the words of the prophets agree. And so, for me, it's astonishing that dispensationalists can say in the future there's going to be a period where once again there's going to be two separate peoples with Israel dominating and the Gentiles being ruled over. They're the ones who are going to be serving. There's going to be a resurrected temple, sacrifices, priesthood, all of that resurrected, and that verses 16 through 17 is talking about that. That would be a great way, from my perspective, to disprove Peter, not to support Peter. Why would he be bringing that up when Peter is trying to teach exactly the opposite? Now, turn with me to Amos uh, chapter 9. Amos is three books after Daniel. So, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. And in chapter 9, Amos describes the destruction of of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, if you know your history, you know that Israel had been divided into two kingdoms after Solomon, after Solomon died. So, 209 years before uh, the fall of the northern kingdom, 209 years before Amos 9 is written, Saul's son Rehoboam had imposed such tyranny upon the kingdom that the ten northern tribes revolted and they became a separate nation called Israel. The two southern tribes uh, stayed with Rehoboam and they became Judah. And so Israel is split up into two different kingdoms. And Amos in this chapter is talking about the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. Now if you look at verse 1, 
of Amos 9 here, you will see the beginning of the metaphorical ruins of Israel. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and He said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake and break them on the heads of all of them. I will slay the last of them with the sword. And then begins a terrifying description of how God was going to destroy Israel, cast them out among the nations. Now, the interesting thing is, the temple wasn't up in northern Israel. It was down in the south. And uh, many commentaries point this out. Uh, the northern kingdom was judged. It was scattered long before the southern kingdom was. And so this altar, the doorpost, the threshold, they're all totally metaphors of the northern kingdom of the people of God because it's the northern kingdom that's going to be destroyed. In context, it's clear that it's a metaphor because there is no literal building. And he, he immediately, mid-sentence, switches from destroying the, the temple to it being the people who is destroyed. When the people are ruined, it's the metaphorical tabernacle of David that is ruined. Now, if you just skip ahead a little bit, there's destruction all the way through here, but he finishes the destruction description in verses 9 through 10. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. So according to James, Amos then talks about something that comes after this judgment. Amos just puts the paragraphs in sequential order. And James is simply making note of it. The on that day of verse 11 comes after the judgment of verses 1 through 10. And by the way, the on that day is a, a phrase that's uh, frequently used in the Old Testament to refer the, to the Messianic uh, period, to, to the Messianic kingdom. So the readers, I think, would have automatically understand. This was in the future. Verse 11 was after this. Now, when all of that context is taken into account, this means that the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David has to take place in the first century. Jesus is doing something in the first century. There's no getting around it. And I won't get into all the boring, nitty-gritty, exegetical details on that, but even many premillennialists have been forced to this conclusion. Uh, in the footnote, I quote... Uh, J. Barton Payne is one premillennialist uh, who uh, 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 takes the historic position. He says, the revival of the line of David in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, the reference must be to His first coming. For Acts 15, verse 16, emphasizes that it is this event which enables the Gentiles from the apostolic period onward to seek God. That is the effect of the coming of Christ. Now later he says, yet after these things, Acts 15:16, that is the exile and preservation of Amos 9:9 9, 9 through 10, and after Christ's incarnation, Amos 9:11, came the engrafting of uncircumcised Gentiles into the church to which Acts 15 applies the Old Testament passage, so it cannot refer to times yet future. So the main point of going through this is that all all viewpoints, pre-mill, on-mill, and uh, post-mill historically have said that verses 16 through 17 apply to the, the, the establishment of the church uh, in, the, uh, in the first century, first from the Jews and then the Gentiles being grafted in. 
Now, some dispensationalists might think, well, what about the word return there? And the answer is that Amos 9, 1 through 10, God abandons Israel. And in the incarnation, God returns to Israel. As Malachi 3, 7 words it, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So it's that kind of return. It's totally different from the second coming. In fact, the word that's used, both in the Hebrew here and then the Greek in the New Testament, totally different word for the word used of the second coming. In the first century, when God became Emmanuel, God returned to us. He was God with us. Luke 1, 68 and 78. Luke 7, 16. They all speak of the time of the incarnation as the time that God visited His people Israel. Uh, Luke 19, 44 accuses Israel of not knowing the time of their visitation. So I think it's perfectly natural reading to say that Israel that had been abandoned by God first had God return to them in the first century. And it's interesting that John 1, 14 says that this incarnation was God tabernacling among men. He was the tabernacle that God set up. In fact, He's called the temple, John 2, verse 21. And because He descended from David, He is the tabernacle of David. Now, there's a body connected to Jesus, right? He's the head, we're the body, and so the body is also called uh, the temple. And in Jesus, the former ruins are now being reestablished as the People are being saved and new living stones are being put into this temple and it's being constructed. That's the image that's being brought out. You remember how in Amos 9.1 he describes the temple, the tabernacle, I should say. God uh, is going to destroy the tabernacle. How does he do it? By destroying the people. It's, a, it's not a physical temple. It's a metaphorical temple. And uh, uh, it's perfectly natural then to say the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David is the salvation of people from every tribe of Israel, uh, just like it happened in the early church. Uh, another way of saying it is if everyone agrees that the tabernacle of David and Amos, uh, that he starts with at least, is, is uh, metaphorical, then you would expect in Acts 15 when he quotes it, it's going to be metaphorical. Okay, now we've spent some time in Acts 1 through 2 I don't know how long ago that was, maybe over a year ago, demonstrating that God indeed had reconstituted the 12 tribes of Israel with 12 princes, 12 groups of 10 men, meaning 10 families in each of these groups, uh, prophets, uh, the minimum number to establish a new community, which was 120 men. And once this new spiritual Israel was reconstituted out of the old Israel as the remnant, it would never again be destroyed. And so it, it is a metaphorical tabernacle of David that is being brought, uh, brought out. So Amos 9, and we're going to summarize Amos here, can be divided up into three periods of history. Verse, first, verses 1 through 2, they're all pre-Christ. Then verses 11 through 12 are Pentecost through and including the whole period of the ingathering of the Gentiles that's going on right now. And then the third period is in verses 13 through 15. It's the time still future to us of the glory of the kingdom, of when there's going to be peace and prosperity and righteousness in the earth. Now, once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, that's Amos 9, verse 12, then verses 13 through 15 comes in. Israel's converted. There's going to be even greater blessing to the whole world. Uh, 
Here's another way you could describe it. Verses 1 through 10 describe the scattering of Israel to the four corners. Verse 11 describes the conversion and the reconstituting of a remnant of Israel in Christ. Verse 12 describes the great missions effort of reaching the Gentiles happening right now. And then verses 13 through 15 shows a saved Israel regathered to the land and bringing great blessing to the world. And that's exactly the same order that's laid out in Romans chapter 11. Now, before I make application of this, uh, I want uh, you to turn to Acts 15. I just want to make two more points from there. Very briefly. Verse 17 says that as a result of the first century building of the ruins of the house of Israel, the rest of mankind is going to be Christianized. It says, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. That's dealing with individual salvation throughout the world. But it goes beyond that. It clarifies and it says, even all the Gentiles, or that could be translated, even all the nations, because that's what Gentiles means, is nations, who are called by my name. So it's a wonderful picture of the Great Commission. Our call in Matthew 28 is not simply to win a few individuals, it's to disciple all nations and teach all nations to observe everything that Christ has commanded us. And then he ends the Great Commission by saying, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so if we had any doubt that the Great Commission could be fulfilled, uh, that was supposed to alleviate those concerns because we don't have to do it on our own. He's going to be with us right to the end of the age. Well, that's how he ends verse 17 in Acts 15. It says, it says, says the Lord who does all these things. It's God who accomplishes it not us. So that's a bird's eye overview of the meaning of this whole verse. Now I want to spend a little bit of time applying uh, these verses to our own lives. First obvious application is that God is in the restoration business. Uh, Why did Jesus come? Verse 16 tells us, after this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up. And I think these are such encouraging words because we live in a period when there is desolation and ruin uh, that has come uh, to the church. Divorce rates have never been as high in America. Families are falling apart. Pornography is everywhere. There's a drug epidemic. The occult is on the rise. Music is demonic. God is kicked out of the courts. Our nation has turned morals upside down. 3,000 babies on average, are murdered in the womb every day. Students are educated in godlessness. Suicide is increasing. America is in ruins. And you ask, why is America in ruins? It's because we've abandoned God and God has abandoned us. He does not want us enjoying the tabernacle when we're in rebellion to Him. As as I started the sermon with a quote from Warren Wiersbe, he said, God would rather see His land devastated, the city of Jerusalem ruined, His temple destroyed, and His people killed and exiled than to have them give such a false witness to the Gentile nations. The church has been giving an incredibly false witness to the nations, and so God has been engaged in a deconstruction phase. He has been bringing ruins to the church. Why? He doesn't want us enjoying our sin. But praise the Lord, uh, He's not just in the business of ruining uh, the lives of rebels. He delights in bringing restoration. And what should be our response? Well, in verses 1 through 5, the Pharisees wanted to exclude people who had messed up lives and say, oh, no, we've got everything nicely put together here. We don't want to be including all of these people. It's going to upset the status quo. And the apostles are arguing that's the whole point of the new covenant 
It's to restore ruined lives. God's in the restoration business and we need to be reaching out to hurting people. We need to be bringing them into the church. God restores broken down individuals who are messed up with drugs, bad educational, emotional problems, bitterness, all of the destructive things that Satan brings into our lives. God is in the business of changing those lives around. And when we put our trust in Jesus, which means casting our sins upon Him, receiving His righteousness for ourselves, what He does is He begins from the inside out a total renovation process. He restores families that are ruined and broken. We live in an age of divorce and loneliness and fragmented families. But this is also the age where God's grace was destined to triumph over all of that. Uh, His grace can rebuild ruined churches. His grace can rebuild ruined cultures. So there's no reason to give up uh, the Jesus... Uh, who back in the first century turned the world upside down and eventually converted Rome can turn America around as well. We ought not to lose hope uh, in Him. A second application that we can make is that this isn't totally up to us. In fact, if it was totally up to us, we'd be in deep trouble because we know what a mess we can make uh, of our lives. Scripture indicates we are dead in our sins, We are unable to help ourselves apart from His grace. As Bob uh, Dylan worded it, I was blinded by the devil, born already ruined, stone dead cold as I stepped out of the womb. That is the state of every man, woman, and child who comes into this world. They're dead. They cannot help themselves. But this passage speaks of sovereign grace, reaching out to people who can't reach out themselves, taking them, changing them. Verse 14, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. He didn't wait for people to make the first move. No, God's out there reaching out to these people. And the same verse says, He turns to them. Uh, He builds them. He sets them up. Verse 17 ends with the words, The Lord who does all these things. And so it's a wonderful reminder. When we can't help ourselves, God is the one who begins. He continues. He finishes the whole restoration process when our lives are in a ruin. Wonderful words uh, to, to, to remember. And so if you think that your family is beyond reparation, look to the one who is the master builder who is able to do it. If you think our culture is beyond restoring, look to the one who was able to do it. Now, this does not rule out our seeking of him because verse 17 is quite clear. The Gentiles do indeed seek the Lord. But it points out we can only seek him as he has first sought us. It's sovereign grace which moves our hearts. And if you've already had some hope that's springing in you, it's an indication God's at work by His grace within your life. Uh, And uh, you just need to give the rest of your life to Him and say, Lord, I want you to be in this restoration business in me. Now, some people think, why in the world would I give my life to Christ? I have messed things up so much, I have nothing I could contribute to Him. Um, And my response to them would be, so you're saying that your life sort of looks like verse 16? sort of looking like the ruined lives, the ruined house of David there. See, what we need to do is we need to take our eyes off of ourselves and put our eyes on Jesus, who is the master builder. He's the only one that can make our lives count. You might just think of it this way. Think of a hunk of paper. A hunk of paper does not by itself have a whole lot of worth. But if you have a poet like Longfellow write a poem on it, suddenly that paper could be sold for quite a bit. It's worth a lot. If you have our U.S. government 
take a worthless piece of paper and put a picture of Andrew Jackson on it, it's suddenly worth 20 bucks. Okay? And it's uh, the, the same way with us. We may not think that we are worth a whole lot, but when God takes us and He says, I've called you to Myself, I'm naming you after Me, I'm putting My stamp upon you, then suddenly we, even though in ourselves are weak and not worth much, God can use us. He can use us powerfully for the extension of His kingdom. You're probably familiar with Paderowski, the concert pianist. Uh, there was a woman who took her son to uh, one of his concerts and she just wanted to inspire this kid to really practice because he was starting his piano lessons and this was a great way to jumpstart this. She was in the front row and uh, she was in a dialogue conversation with one of her friends and hadn't noticed that her son had darted up there onto the stage, sat down at the piano, and started playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star with one finger. And when she realized it was her kid, she was mortified. She didn't know whether to hide or to run up there and grab him off the stage, but before she could get up there, Paderowski had come out, was behind the boy, whispered something in his ear, and with both of his hands playing, the kid was playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, but suddenly it was just a fabulous piece as he filled in all of the different notes that were uh, making this a great piece. And that's the way our lives are. In ourselves, we're just playing out a dumpy little tune. God doesn't need us. You know, what, what is our lives? They're ruins. God doesn't need ruins, does He? But it glorifies God greatly when He can take the ruins of our lives that we're so dissatisfied with and say, yes, be dissatisfied. Look to me. Look to my grace and I will make something beautiful out of your dumpy little tune. And God will take that tune and make everyone else say, wow, God has done an awesome thing there. He's ministered so much uh, within me. That's the way we need to look at His grace. He's in the ruin restoration business. The fourth application is that God's kingdom should be like a magnet to the nations. Verse 16 speaks of a rebuilt church and verse 17 gives us the result of that rebuilt church. It was rebuilt, it says, so that, here's the reason, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Now, if the church is not reaching out to a lost world, it means to me that it's still in need of more rebuilding. Why do I say that? I say that because a rebuilt church of verse 16 is automatically causing others to seek the Lord. It's engaged in missions. That's the very nature of God's rebuilding. He wants us to be so transformed by His grace, we're not holding it in. We're excited to tell it to others. We're excited to share it with others. And so here's the question. Are you a magnet who is drawing other people to the grace of the Lord, making them jealous of what you have? Say, yeah, I want the Christ that you've got in your life. Is your family a magnet? Is our church a magnet? It needs to be. And if it is not, and I think we have a long ways to go, it means we still have some rebuilding that God's got to be doing uh, within us. Now, some people are so ashamed of their past, they don't want it to attract any attention from others. They just can't get over thinking how awful they are. Uh, they can't get beyond their shame. And I know for a number of years, I, I was like this. I did not... Uh, I, I was so focused on the shame of the past, I couldn't get beyond that to serving in the future. And I think of the story of Roy Regals in 1929. If uh, Pastor Glenn Durham was here, he'd tell, tell us that um, 
his team got whomped by Georgia Tech. It was actually pretty close. It was an 8-7 to seven score, but it was a pretty famous time in Georgia Tech's uh, history. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, RoseBowlLegends.org Rose gives the story this way. Roy Wrongway Regals, April 4, 1908 to March 26, 1993, played for the University of California Berkeley football team from 1927 to 1929. His wrong way run in the 1929 Rose Bowl game is often cited as the worst blunder in the history of college football. What am I seeing? Announcer Graham Mammy screamed as he broadcast the 1929 Rose Bowl game between Georgia Tech and California. Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? In those moments of football history, <laughs> Roy Regals, a center and captain-elect of the California Bears, snagged a football, fumbled by Georgia Tech back Stumpy Thomason. He got the fumble on first bounce, got bumped, spun around, finding himself suddenly in the clear, sprinted frantically toward the goal line 64 yards distant. He was headed the wrong way. Teammate Benny Loam, a fleet halfback, chased Regals half the length of the field, shouting, Stop! Stop! Turn back, Roy! You're going the wrong way! Thinking the speedier Loam was pleading for the ball to outrace the pursuing Georgia Tech players, Regals yelled back, Get out of here, Benny! This is my ball! It wasn't until he'd almost crossed the goal line with Loam pulling at him that Regals understood and tried to reverse direction. It was too late. Georgia Tech gang-tackled him at the one-yard line. They tried to punt out of the end zone, but it got blocked by Georgia Tech, which gave them a safety enough to win. Well, you can imagine the horrible dismay that Roy Regals was experiencing after he found out what he had done. It was just so shameful. I did a little bit of research just to find out what happened because they didn't give the whole story. But uh, they filed into the locker room at halftime, and they were all just sitting on the floor, sitting in different chairs, stunned by what had happened, because now the score is 8-7, to seven, and Roy Regals, he's just in a corner with a blanket up over his head and his, his head and his hands, and just beside himself, and the coach did not say a thing during the whole halftime. They were just sitting in that room, silent. He was trying to figure out what to do with Regals, and when the timekeeper came in and said, there's three minutes before time to play, Coach Price said, Men, the same team that played the first half will start the second. And all of them got up except for Regals. He didn't budge. Coach looked back and called to him, Roy, didn't you hear me? The same te team that played the first half will start the second. And Roy looked up, his tears just coming down his cheek. And he said, Coach, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined the university's reputation. I've ruined myself. I can't face the crowd out there. And the coach simply said, Roy, get up and go back. The game is only half over. And from what I understand, Roy did play hard and he did play well. They still lost. <laughs> still lost the championship. But even though 450,000 columns, uh, inch columns of print in newspapers was printed about this, even though he was sent tons of hate mail, and all kinds of gag gifts in the mail. He was even sent a, an honorary membership in Georgia Tech's Alumni Association <laughs> for giving them, you know, the victory. Uh, even though all of that happened, he, he managed to just take it all in with good humor 
and to put the past behind him and even joke about it when it came up and just take it lightheartedly. God really wants us to do the same. He says, yeah, every one of our lives is ruined. We've met a mess of things about our lives. We've got a lot to be embarrassed about. But even though we have been caught in the past running the ball toward the wrong goal line, Jesus says, put it behind you. You can't live in the past. And there may be some of you here who are sitting out of the game because of remorse. And you just think, there isn't anything I can accomplish. I have messed it up so bad. There isn't anything I can accomplish. Well, take verse 16 as your theme verse and get on with life. Okay, don't let Satan tell you you can't be fixed or you can't be forgiven. You can and you will be if you will believe in Jesus. A fifth application that we can make is that there are no longer any second-class citizens within the church. Once you've repented of your sins, you've put your trust in Jesus, then you are a full part of the team and we need you. We need every one of you. Now, the Pharisees didn't think that way. They tried to embarrass the Gentiles. They tried to treat them as second-class citizens, but the apostles would not let them do that. Would not let them. Verse 9 says, God has made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Paul says the same to each one today who joins in the church. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The moment we try to treat some person as unimportant, as uh, not needed, as being a second-class citizen, what we are doing is we are disobeying the spirit of this general assembly in Acts chapter 15. doesn't matter how far your life has fallen. When God builds you, and He indwells you. You are equal citizens in the kingdom, and we want to value you. A sixth application we can make is that we have every reason to rejoice that the times of tearing down are for the most part over, and the times of rebuilding are here. Now, individually, God will tear things down still. If we get high-handed, He says He resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. But in terms of the overarching flow of history... The times of tearing down are for the most part over. This is par excellence, the times of rebuilding. Things are not getting worse and worse in the world. Now, sure, there's downward times like happening right now. It's a deconstruction phase in America. But it's going that direction to humble us and bring us to repentance. And Isaiah 9 will never be brought to the lie where he says of the increase of his kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. Matthew 16 will not be brought to a lie where he says he will so invincibly build his church that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so don't doubt, believe that we are in the time of the rebuilding. Don't let the newspaper rob you of that hope. And this brings us to point G. Now, this means that we have every reason to set our sights much higher than simply the salvation of a few or even just the salvation of ourselves. Now, God's plan goes way beyond that. We must not have a lesser plan than Jesus did. When He gave the Great Commission, He commanded us to disciple all nations, teaching them all things that He has uh, given uh, to us in His Word. Jesus is in the business of restoration of individuals, of families, of churches, 
and restoration of entire cultures. This is a culture-transforming verse that we are looking at here. Point H reminds us that to question whether the Great Commission can be fulfilled is to doubt God's power. Now, it's true. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But two verses later, He says this in John 15, verse 7, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Believe in the power of God. That's the whole point of his ending verse 17 by saying that it's the Lord who does these things. Have faith in His power. And so I end the sermon this morning by admonishing you to pray for and to work for the restoration of the glory of the church worldwide. Do everything you can to promote that. There will never be a time when there won't be some ruins to fix. And the reason I say that is because every time, verse 16, the ruins are fixed, what happens? There's more ruined Gentiles that keep coming into the church, right? So there's never going to be a time when there isn't fixing to be done, which means there's never a time when we can stop preaching Reformation. Constantly, we need to be having Reformation of our lives and Reformation of the church uh, out there. And our whole life is a call to change. When God calls us to believe and repent in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not the end of it. The rest of our lives is a call to change. So we must never get into our holy huddle and be satisfied with where we're at. We must never be satisfied with the status quo. Always, he's saying, I want your life being conformed to the image of Christ. I want this family conformed to the image of Christ. Don't be satisfied with where your family is at. Constantly reevaluate and say, Lord, rebuild me. Rebuild me and make me to be the kind of powerful tool that you've intended me to be. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word, and I pray that we would live it out to Your glory. Uh, may You receive the glory uh, as we seek to do this because we recognize it's only by Your power we're going to be able to achieve the things You have called us to do. We love You. We commit ourselves to You. And I pray we would not uh, be like some who, when they are hugely shamed by their past, they're paralyzed and cannot move forward. But may we be like Roy Regals, having blown it, May we move forward with good confidence, good humor, and able to take on this world because we're confident in You. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.